Corner Fringe Ministries presents The Hell of Torah, Part 2, with Daniel Joseph. Well, today, we are going to continue with this theme, The Hell of Torah. And last week, we began to look at what this statement really means, and we saw through Scripture and even through external resources such as the Apocrypha, right? You remember going to the Apocrypha? specifically second Esdras, well, we saw something. We saw in Scripture, it cannot be disputed. You, I mean, you can even take all the denominations that exist in evangelical Christianity today. You can even go into Catholicism. You can put us all in a huge circle all together. And all the doctrinal differences that we possess, one thing is for certain that we can all agree on. And that is judgment is coming, right? It is coming. There's no question. And when you go to Scripture and you look at this judgment that is coming, we discover that it's coming in a very particular fashion, specific. It is coming in fire, right? The judgment that is coming is coming in fire. And this is very significant to note because it tells us something. It tells us how God is going to judge the world. It tells us by what measure he is going to judge mankind. The fire that is going to be kindled, that is going to be burning on the day of judgment. It's going to literally uh, melt and dissolve, as Peter told us. The heavens, not just the earth, but the heavens and the earth. The very fire that's going to consume the wicked is none other than the law of God. None other than Torah. Remember, we looked at last week that God himself is a fire. When he spoke the Aseret HaDevarim from Mount Sinai, his words proceeded forth from fire. The Torah is a fire. We saw the Lord's words in Jeremiah. Is not my word like a fire? Well, as I mentioned last week, this whole concept of the law of God coming of Torah, the hell of Torah coming. This presents a serious theological conundrum for those believers who are sitting in the camp right now that believe Christ's purpose in coming to this earth was actually to do away with the law. It presents a serious problem because everywhere we read in Scripture, Christ is coming back and He's bringing the Torah. He is going to bring the hell of Torah. This leaves you scratching your head as to how could Christ possibly come and do away with the law when when he comes again, that's exactly what he's bringing. Unfortunately, today, far too many believers, we find they have reduced the faith down to simply a concept. Now, many of you have heard me talk about this before. But faith has been reduced. Modern-day Christianity has reduced it to simply a concept. In other words, it's a faith that's not required to translate into action. It's a faith that's not required to translate into self-sacrifice. A faith that's not required to observe Torah, to walk in the commandments of God. It's conceptual only. It only needs to be in the mind. I just need to have a belief, and I am saved. Unfortunately, this conceptual faith, it's not faith at all. It is deception. Right? It's a deception. Casting the law of God behind your backs, right? 
offer the pretense of exalting Yeshua, that is deception. That is not faith. And we know exactly why. Because our Mashiach is not a minister of sin. He's not a minister of lawlessness. There was a man, very well known, his name is Leonard Ravenhill. One of the most prolific, articulate, well-spoken preachers that has ever come out of Christianity. And this gentleman, he spared no words whatsoever regarding what he saw happening to the church. Because he saw something taking place. And he spared no words coming out against it. Listen, I'll give you an example. Listen to this statement that he makes. He says, The sinner's prayer has sent more people to hell than all the bars in America. Unfortunately, when you look at the condition of the church today, you quickly realize just how relevant this statement that Ravenhill made is in today's church. Satan has cast his spell upon the church, peddling his perverse and twisted theology, getting the church to embrace this counterfeit faith. One that costs you nothing, and yet you inherit everything. A faith that does not require self-sacrifice. It's a pseudo-faith. One that refuses to embrace the conviction of godly sorrow. Yet it's quick to embrace the dictates of its own heart. It's a pseudo-faith. You step back and you look at the church today, Satan has done the unthinkable. He has successfully peddled his campaign of a lawless gospel. And what has happened? The church has swallowed it whole. Ravenhill wasn't the only one who saw the enemy infiltrating into the church, going back in time a little bit further. We come to a man known as Charles Spurgeon. He's a hellfire Baptist preacher. How many of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon? I would think most of you had. Hands down, one of the most influential preachers in the history of Christianity. This man dealt with the very issues that I'm dealing with today. He dealt with the same thing and he dealt with them Hat on, sparing no words. If you've ever read his commentaries or sermons, you quickly realize that Spurgeon, he wasn't someone that was really concerned with political correctness. He wasn't concerned about whether or not what he said offended somebody or hurt somebody's feelings. Spurgeon's goal, when you go through these commentaries, they will pierce you to the heart because they stem from Scripture. They're powerful. His goal was to pull people out of deception, to take back from the kingdom of Satan and to bring them uh, into the power of God. Suffice it to say, Spurgeon, like Ravenhill before him, saw what was happening to the church. He saw a trend beginning to develop, and he took every opportunity to speak out against what he saw happening. I want to read to you part of one of his sermons. And ironically enough, the title is The Perpetuity of God's Law. Listen to what he says. This is profound. Lower the law and you dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. The first thing I want you to identify here is that where did Spurgeon see the law was to be held? The highest. It was to be held up high, put on a pedestal. 
what we need to be looking at, what we need to seek to attain, righteousness being put on a pedestal. And yet the first thing we read here is he says, bring it down, bring it down off that pedestal. And what happens? You dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. You sever conviction. That's what happens. And what what does Torah say or what does the psalm say? Psalm 119. Thy word is a lamp unto thy feet and a light unto the path. You could say the Torah. And we're told the Torah is a light in Proverbs 6. He goes on. This is a very serious loss to the sinner rather than a gain for it lessens the likelihood of his conviction and conversion. I say you have deprived the gospel of its oblist auxiliary, meaning the most powerful weapon, when you have set aside the law. He goes on. You have taken away from it the schoolmaster that is to bring men to Christ. They will never accept grace till they tremble before a just and holy law. Therefore, the law serves a most necessary and blessed purpose, and it must not be removed from its place. When the sinner sees the awful consequences of breaking the law of God, that's what this whole, let me tell you something, that's what all of this hell of Torah is about. Realizing consequences. When the sinner sees the awful consequences of breaking the law of God, that he cannot escape certainty of judgment. He will see his need to put on the Lord Yeshua HaMashiach. When we preach future punishment by the law or by Torah, the sinner comes to Christ solely to flee from the wrath to come. Absolutely profound. One of the most beautiful articulations of the law you will find outside of the Bible. These words are more relevant today than ever before. You look at the church today, and instead of believers embracing liberty from sin, that type of liberty, they're embracing a liberty from righteousness, a liberty from God's law, his instruction, which is exactly why we find the Apostle Paul stating these words to Timothy, warning him. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I don't want to get into it today, but I can show you from Scripture, specifically the New Testament, what Paul means by sound doctrine. It is explicit. He is referring to Torah. Every time you see Paul say sound doctrine, you should think of Torah. I'll come back to that sometime in the near future and bear that out for you. So he says, they do not endure sound doctrine, or you could say the Torah, but according to their own desires... Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth, which is what is Torah, it is truth, and be turned aside to fables. The words of Paul are in full bloom today in the church. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the church. These words are in full bloom. And what does this tell us when we read this? Paul almost wrote this 2,000 years ago. What does this tell us? It tells us that we are living in the very last moments of time. The final grains of sand in the hourglass are dropping down. Judgment is upon us, people. This is the crescendo of the history of the world. Never since the flood have we seen anything like we see today. Nothing like it unbridled passions, unbridled lusts in people, unbridled wickedness, 
Men are not just practicing sin. They are actually boasting in it. They are rejoicing in sin. This world has never seen anything like this environment since the time of the flood. The spiritual realm, I can tell you this, it is in total chaos. Being engaged in the most epic of battles, the demons are scrambling like never before. There's very little time left, and they know it. They're moving as fast as they can to add to their kingdom, to collect more worshipers, more servants of Satan, because they're preparing for the final battle. And when you look at the world today, when you look at the church, you see that these demons, the demonic realm, they are going out and they are deceiving men and women at record levels. And the only way to describe the situation is nightmarish. You have to pinch yourself, you have to rub your eyes because you cannot believe what you are seeing. It's surreal. But having said that, none of this should surprise us. Why? Because we're given warning. Scripture did not cease to warn us of these things. The Apostle Paul did not cease to warn us. Righteous men of God have not ceased to warn us. Men like Ravenhill, men like Charles Spurgeon, right? Spurgeon saw what we were experiencing today in the church. He saw what was going to happen to the church. Any question to this, consider his following quote. As he peered into the future of the church, this is what he saw. A time will come when instead of the shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. Think about that. Think about that statement. He saw it. Can you imagine if Spurgeon were alive today and look at the church today, he would break down and weep at the relevancy of this statement. We have clowns entertaining the goats. We're living in a generation where churches have turned themselves into entertainment venues. This is what they are. Everything... From rodeos to rock shows, cappuccinos to carnivals, we have it in the church. Do you want to be entertained? Come to the church. Just think about that. And I'm not kidding when I say rodeos. Literally bringing horses and dirt in while you got a guy running around proclaiming the name of Jesus while he's having a rodeo. The clowns have entered the building. Any question to this, just consider the following video, something that's went viral. Every one of us, most of us have seen this. Describe the church today. I just want to encourage every one of us to realize when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves. Because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's the thing that gives Him the greatest joy this morning. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship Him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Amen. Let's open our heart to Him today. Father. There are no words to describe that other than the fact this is the mantra today. Are you more shocked by what she said? The fact that she said it, or 
Or are you more shocked that what she said is actually true? Think about that. I will tell you it's the latter. I am more shocked by what she said is actually happening in the churches. This is why people are going to church. And they don't even realize it. They're going for their passions, their own dictates of their own heart. Let me take you back to Ravenhill because he can articulate this quite well for us. This is what he says. The early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. Today the church is married to prosperity, personality, popularity. It's true. This is the truth. This is what church has become. It's become a circus. It's about popularity. It's about prosperity. Where are the prisons? Where's the persecutions? This is what Ravenhill was getting at. These are bold and very strong words. Godly sorrow is nowhere to be found. Conviction is as rare as gold. Why? Why? Because Satan has stripped the church of the law of God. That's why. Go to the core. What has he done? He has stripped the church of the law of God. And by so doing, he's taken away the reality of judgment. That's what he's done. He's taken away the truth of the fire that is coming. He sedated people so that they do not understand the hell of Torah. You take away the law of God, and I'm going to tell you something. Something happens when you take away the law of God. Something happens inside of us. You take away the fear. You strip the fear of God away from somebody. You wonder why believers feel so at home, so comfortable today committing sin. It's because they have no fear. They have no fear because there is no law. Deuteronomy 31, verse 11. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law, Torah. Before all Israel, in their hearing, gather the people together, men and women and little ones. No one's to be excluded from hearing the law, from hearing the voice of God. And even the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear, hear what? The law. And that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law. You are told in this passage the power that the law possesses. The power of the words of God. When they are heard in our ears, they cause something to change inside of us. It causes conviction. and makes you turn from sin. It makes you fear God. By the fear of the Lord, we're told in Proverbs, by the fear of the Lord, one departs from sin, from evil. That's what we're told. You need the fear of God. You've got to have it. You think about the kings of Israel. The Lord commanded something very specific upon the kings of Israel. He commanded that they were to read this Torah. They were to get their own copy. They were to have their own copy of the Torah, and they were to read it. Why? Because it was to produce fear inside of them so that they would not sin. We need to be reading our Bibles. Amen? This is what we need to be doing. I want to take you to the book of Psalms now. I want to continue this theme of the hell of Torah, the fiery, the fire, the imagery, the fiery judgment. 
And here we're going to be given evidence, or I could say more evidence, as to the validity of the law. This is information that you guys need to store away and that you need to be sharing with your believing friends and even unbelievers. Psalm 96, verse 13, we read, For He's coming, He is coming to judge the earth. Now I want to stop. Who is the He in question here? I'm going to tell you, it is Yeshua. Specifically, I will prove this even further, but if you think even of going to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Yeshua says, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. I want to make a point here. There is no question of the He who this is, that the he here is Yeshua. I want to, with that frame of mind, read it in context. Yeshua is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world, how? With righteousness, Zedek in Hebrew, righteousness, and the peoples with his truth, Amunah, oftentimes translated as faithfulness. So we see here how the Lord is coming back to judge. It is going to be through righteousness. Well, what is righteousness? Well, fortunately for us, the Bible tells us, Psalm 119, 172, My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments, mitzvot, are righteousness. This is how he is coming to judge the earth. It will be through his commandments. You ever wonder why Yeshua makes that statement in John 14, 15? If you love me, keep my commandments. That was a statement. It is so missed. It's, it's a tragedy. It is a warning. Now, Yeshua was warning his disciples. He was warning us. You love me? You're going to want to keep my commandments. Because he is the one who is coming back to judge according to the very thing he spoke in John 14, 15. His commandments. His law. This is why the Apostle Paul actually makes the following statement. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of who? Mashiach, right? That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Let me tell you something. Paul is quoting from Ecclesiastes 12, 13. What is the conclusion of the whole matter? He asks. It's a rhetorical question. Solomon replies, Fear God and keep his commandments. This is man's all, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Paul is literally almost quoting this verbatim. Verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Paul knows something about his Mashiach. He knows something about the Messiah Yeshua. When he comes back, it is going to be frightening. Read the prophet Joel. Read the prophet Isaiah. They say the exact same thing. The day of the Lord is great and terrible. That's how it's defined. Therefore, Paul tells us, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, what do we do? We persuade men. We warn them. We turn them back to Yeshua. They need, a sal they need salvation. They need a Savior. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Now, going back to Psalm 96, 13, I want to build upon this passage for you by taking you to another passage. It's a parallel passage. It's a mirror image of what we read right here in Psalm 96. And it's actually a passage that we covered last week. 
that I said we would come back to because there's a lot more to say. So we're going to go back to Revelation. And this is what we read. John looks, he says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. It's amazing. You've got to collect all the thoughts that are being presented here. The whole thing is, is he's looking, he sees heaven open. Well, we know what happens on Rosh Hashanah, what happens on Yom Teruah. It, the heaven, the gates of heaven open. But it's not for us to go in, it's because the king is coming out. And this is what John is looking at, he's seeing this, and he's seeing the king that coming out of heaven, it's open. And he's on a white horse. And he who sat on him, he has a specific name that he's called immediately by, faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So when the gates of heaven are open, the Lord is coming out to judge. He is coming out for war. And we're told it's in a very specific way exactly what Psalm 96 said on how he would come. He's coming to judge the world in righteousness and we continue in verse 12 his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns he had a name written that no one knew except himself verse 13 he was clothed with the robe dipped in blood i want to stop here because the very first thing that i want you to understand about this passage this blood that is soaked into his robe is not his own I mean, for us Christians, when we say blood, we think lamb, we, it's sacrifice. It's our blessed sacrifice. It's him taking our sins. That is not what is happening here, nor is that the context. The blood that is on his robe, is, he's soaked in it because he has slain his enemies. Think about that. He has slain the wicked to the extent that his entire garment is saturated in blood. And let me prove this. Isaiah 63, verse 1, we read, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments, dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save, why is your apparel red? and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress. Remember these terms. We're going to see them in Revelation. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. It's the blood of the wicked, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance, this is the context, the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. So this blood that we see in Revelation 19, 13, that his robe is dipped in blood, this is not referring to his sacrifice, it's referring to his vengeance. And the blood of the wicked has splattered and saturated his robe. And his name, as we continue, and his name is called... The Word of God. The second thing I want to draw your attention to here, there's a specific name by which Yeshua is called that is ascribed to Him in this passage. It is none other than the Word of God. 
This title wasn't used by accident. Okay? This was used intentionally because it goes along with the context of the passage. Keep the context. It's used because what's being described, what is happening here. Yeshua is coming back with vengeance. And when he comes back with vengeance, what have we established? How is he going to judge? Through Torah. Or you could say the word. His word. Yeshua is the living Torah, is he not? Now the passage goes on to state, and the armies in heaven, it's interesting, again, keeping in context, notice he doesn't say, and my friends in heaven are coming along with me. It says the armies, because this is war. This is the context. He's coming back in war, for war. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that he should strike the nations. It's interesting. This is just fascinating. Because last week we saw that when he comes to destroy his enemy, remember what Esdras saw. He opened his mouth. The Mashiach opened his mouth. And out came a fiery stream. Right? It was a stream of fire. And that stream of fire is what devoured the adversaries. And yet when we go to Revelation, we get a little different imagery we're told it's a sword. Well, going back to Estras, that fiery stream, we were given the understanding of it. We were told it is Torah. It is the law. Well, here in this imagery, it comes out of his mouth, same place, but it's in the imagery of a sword. When we read Scripture, what do we learn about the sword? Well, Ephesians 6. Think about that, right? Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God, His commandments, His truth, His Torah. The very title, by the way, which Yeshua is called in this passage. The sword represents the Word of God. Ephesians 4 is another place. The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than what? Any two-edged sword. Over and over again we find that the sword is imagery it's used for the Torah. It's used for the Word of God. And this is common. You study Yeshua's parables. He takes two parables, butts them up. He does this all the time. And he's saying the same thing, but he uses two different imageries entirely to get a point across. This is common, right? What about the dreams that he gave Pharaoh? One was dreaming he dreamt cows. The imagery was cows. Second, it was corn. But they were the exact same thing. So this is common. This type of thing is common. We look at sword, it means the exact same thing of what fire means. It is Torah, all right? And this is how he's coming to judge, with his word, the word of God. All right, verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress. I mean, go back to Isaiah treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So here we see Yeshua, he's coming back. He's going to take vengeance on the wicked. Let me put it to you this way. He's going to take vengeance through his Torah on those who are Torahless or lawless. These are the ones that are going to fall under judgment. 
let me tell you the most disturbing part of all of this. When Yeshua comes back to judge, there are going to be a lot of people who believed that they were saved. There's going to be people that believe they were true servants of Yeshua. But when Yeshua comes back, He's going to open His mouth and His law is going to come forth and testify otherwise. Let me give you an example. In Matthew 7.21, hands down, rank it in the top three scariest verses, passages in, in all of the Scripture. Yeshua says this, because this applies to the church, and exclusively the church. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. First thing I want to mention is they are calling Him by name. They profess to know Him. They know Him by name. Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting, what does Yeshua say here? But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. You want to know one of the secrets into entering into eternal life? We are to do the will of the Father in heaven. If you ask me how to describe Torah, as I've been asked before, and I've shared this with you, how do we describe Torah in less than five words? There are two ways to do this. Number one, I could just say Yeshua and be done with it. I could also say it is the will of God. It's the will of God. That's what Torah is. So here we see people calling on Yeshua, saying, Jesus, Yeshua. They're calling him by name. Lord, Lord. We go on verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name. I want to be very clear. These are people that profess Jesus is Lord. They profess Yeshua is the Mashiach. And they don't just profess it, they're going out to do the work of the kingdom. In his name. Going out telling people, I serve Yeshua, I serve Jesus. Listen to what he says to these people. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The Lord will reject those who reject his Torah. He's going to reject them. They can call upon them. This is going back to the conceptual faith. It is a deception. Faith without works is dead. Obedience. He's the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Amen? Hebrews 5.9. There are individuals, these individuals that we're looking at here, were not, they, 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 they took, you know, going to that term that I've used, they became spiritual anesthesiologists. They've killed, they've numbed the pain of godly sorrow. The people reading about here, these are the ones who cast the law behind their, bra- their backs. And without... Any conviction embrace the dictates of their own heart. The people we read about here are deceived. They are surprised. This is not what they expected. They expected eternal life. They were calling upon the name of Yeshua. And he refused them. This for me terrifies me. It's passages like this that should keep you on your knees daily. Amen? Let's go to the book of Romans. I want to give some additional evidence 
as to the measure by which God is going to judge mankind. Because when it comes to a topic like this, obviously, I can't submit too much evidence. Going to Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, verse 31, undiscerning, that's a scary descriptor, not being able to discern, you read Hebrews 4, what I was quoting to you, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, it is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart, that is scary because you cast Tanakh out from behind you, what do you lose? Discernment. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving. What does Yeshua say? You do not forgive your brother, you will not be forgiven. Terrifying, because we all like to lie to ourselves and say, I've really forgiven that person. The Lord knows your heart. He knows the bitterness that you cling to. These are terrifying words. When you really look at these words in context, as eternal salvation, it frightens me. Unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, this is judgment, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Going on in the next verse. Therefore, you are an excusable old man, Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. I want to point out something. Again, he's talking to fellow believers. This is amazing. This passage, he's talking to fellow believers, people going out and judging other people in the church, and they're guilty, more guilty, of doing the very same things. Hypocrites. Verse 2. But we know that the judgment of God is what? The judgment of God that is coming, it is according to truth against those who practice such things. What is, what is truth? What is truth? Going back to Psalm 119. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Your Torah is truth. Your law is truth. The judgment of God. Do not be deceived. It is according to His word. It's according to Torah. Everywhere you look in Scripture, you can't get away from it. Judgment is coming. Fire is coming. And it's going to be the word of the Lord that consumes the wicked. It will be the law. The very thing that we find believers are casting behind their backs today. Let me take this theme of fiery judgment a step further. Where again, you're going to see that the Torah, it's not only applicable today, but rather, it's closer to us in intimacy than ever before because of what Yeshua did. Let me take you to the prophet Jeremiah 31. 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with the, 
their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. All right. So I just want to stop here. Here we have a prophecy where God is going to make a new covenant. This is all about the new covenant with his people. And this covenant was not going to be identical to the last. This new covenant was going to be different. It was going to be superior. What and why? Why is it going to be superior? What makes it superior to that of the last covenant? We're given this information in the very next verse. Verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my Torah in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. I want you to ponder that. So instead of writing the law on tablets of stone again, as we've seen in Exodus 20, this is, what, this is exactly what happened with the giving of Torah. It was the finger of God, the Ruach HaKodesh, that etched the Aseret HaDevarim on stone tablets. Not with this new covenant. With the new covenant, the words of the living God, the living, the Torah itself would be placed upon our hearts. I do want to point out here, there's no mention in this passage anywhere of the law of God being done away with. Notice there's nothing about the law of God not being valid. But rather there's an intimacy created with the new covenant. Right? The Lord actually, you think about it, he doubled down, if you will, on the law, so to speak, by moving it to our hearts, moving it closer to us than ever before. And how was this done? It was done. The, the new covenant was instituted through our Lord and Savior, Yeshua. That's how the new covenant, this is why he's called the mediator of the new covenant. It was through his selfless act being sacrificed for our sins that allowed us to be saved and instituted the new covenant, a better covenant, a superior covenant where the law of God will be written on our hearts. You remember what he says in John, later in John, like John 16. He talks, he's talking with his disciples and he's telling him, he's calling down, it's good that I go away. Why? Because if I go away, I will send the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit to you right? He's going to send the Holy Spirit to them, who does all sorts of things. He's a witness. He's an intercessor. He's a teacher. He's a comforter. He would tell us of things to come. Prophecies given through the Ruach. You see all of these beautiful things. Well, there's something else that the Ruach does. What, what is that? He institutes, he is the fulfillment by, by Yeshua commanding the Spirit to come to us, we become children of the new covenant. When the Spirit comes into us, comes into our heart, and writes the law of God on us. It's the new covenant. It's powerful. For when people make the statement that the law has been done away with, you can just see total collapse of understanding the faith, of understanding Yeshua, of understanding what He's done, of understanding the new covenant. Total collapse. It's a total failure. What's fascinating about this new covenant, it ties into this hell of Torah where we know fire is literally equated to the Torah. 
And this Torah is supposed to be written on our hearts. Well, look at what John the Baptist says. This is fascinating. In Luke 3.15, Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, Yochanan answered saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And fire. Because that's what's going to be written on our hearts is the Torah. It is a fire. We're actually to be baptized in the law. Have you ever heard that concept in church before? Being baptized with Torah, with God's righteousness, with Yeshua's righteousness. Testifying of who he really is. It's not a coincidence that we see this imagery of fire used here. Understand, the new covenant is not a covenant devoid of law. But rather, it's a covenant where the fire of Torah burns in our hearts. Amen? I want to close with this statement by Spurgeon. And this is what he says. I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. You catch that? You cannot preach the gospel without preaching the law. The law is the needle. And you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send the needle of the law to make way for it. If men do not understand the law, they will not feel that they are sinners. Oh my goodness, how true is this statement? It's biblically a fact. When we go to Scripture, exactly what he articulated here, it is so true. He goes on. And if they are not consciously sinners, they will never value the sin offering. There is no healing a man till the law has wounded him, nor making him alive till the law has slain him. Absolute, beautiful articulation of reality. We need more people like Spurgeon speaking like he spoke today. Hellfire preachers turning people back to Yeshua so that they can be saved. In an authentic faith. Amen? The worship team can come back up. I want to mention again this week, this message is incomplete. It's still incomplete. I'm just establishing thus far the reality that the Torah is fire, the fire that is coming, it is the Torah. But there's more to this message. Because where does Yeshua come into all of this? Because make no mistake, He plays the most instrumental role in salvation. There's no question about it. So we're going to be talking about Yeshua, the very rock of our salvation. And more than that, we're going to get into how the fire that is coming will affect everyone, both righteous and wicked. So with that said, Shabbat Shalom.